Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 13. My wife has a Louis Vuitton purse. Straight from a knockoff shop in some large Asian country that will go un- <laughs> that will go nameless. <laughs> One of her co-workers' relatives or something, I don't know the exact connection, but he, he, he's a pilot and he flies back and forth to that large Asian country on a regular basis. And he brings back these purses. And I'm telling you, they are exact knockoffs for the real thing. We were down at one of our favorite places down here in Ferndale having lunch, and one of the waitresses noticed her Louis Vuitton purse, and uh, we had to, and they know that I'm the pastor of the church, we had to right away, no, 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 this is a cheap invitation, we did not spend several hundred dollars on this purse, it's a fake, it's a phony, it's not the real thing, but it looks like the real thing. As we come to 1 Corinthians 13 today, we're going to learn some tests of the reality of Christianity. And the things that get substituted for reality really look good. And these are not tests like the kind you pass and then graduate from high school and you're done and you go on. These are tests that we need to apply constantly and consistently to our lives. We need to daily be looking at these tests and asking God to make us real Christians. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. This is, a, this is an extreme passage of Scripture. And it's so extreme that I studied and studied and spent all day Friday trying to come up with the final form of what I was going to share with you, and it still wasn't right. And yesterday, at the almost 12th hour, I got a little bit of clarity on it. And so the points you're going to see up here are different from the points in your notes, and these are the new inspired version. More importantly, I think they're the new clear version, and so I I hope that you'll take them down, because these are just things we have to wrestle with. The first test of real Christianity that we see here is in verse 1, and I've written it this way, godliness is demonstrated by compassionate communication, not eloquence. Compassionate communication, not eloquence. The Corinthians devalued Paul for his lack of eloquence. Listen to this. Do you look at the things according to the outward or just the physical appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself that just as he is Christ, even so we are at Christ. The Corinthian people looked at the Apostle Paul, the guy who helped them, or many of them, come to faith in Christ, and they said, we just don't like you that much. And it was based on an outward appearance, not on who he was or on what he had done, but he just didn't suit them. He wasn't quite fancy enough. 
For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Have you ever listened to somebody preach who you really didn't like to listen to? Don't answer that. (laughs) That was a rhetorical question, not a real question. (laughs) Oh. I have a friend who's a great preacher, but his voice... His physical voice is not that good. And uh, he struggles with that. And there was a guy who was on the radio years ago that used to talk kind of like this all the time. And somebody came on and they were having trouble with their voice. And he said, Yeah, sometimes I have trouble with my voice too, but I just. (laughs) The people listened to Paul and they said, His speech is contemptible. Now, Paul was a highly educated man, so it's not that he was ignorant or had bad grammar. There was something about the way that he talked that just did not please them. When we think of of eloquence, of people who can speak well, we might think of the Gettysburg Address, which, as I understand it, Abraham Lincoln wrote himself, not like the presidents today, who have speech writers, and he wrote it on a scrap of paper Maybe on the way to deliver it, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And he delivered this timeless speech, which has been memorized and studied and quoted. When we think of eloquence, we might think of John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you. This famous line that's been quoted so often, ask what you can do for your country. Eloquence. The Corinthians devalued Paul because he was not an eloquent man when he spoke. It's so easy to slip into some way of thinking or to retreat into quietness because we think our manner of speech is simple or plain. I've heard countless people over the years say, well, I just don't, I don't know how to pray in public. And I think oftentimes what they're saying is, I'm not eloquent. I can't talk like a preacher. I, I, I try not to talk like a preacher. I'm afraid that happens. You know, preaching breaks out every once in a while. I have a videotape at home by a guy who, who talks about getting the call of God and learning to talk like a preacher. And I'm afraid some of those things follow us, and I'm not sure why. People say, well, I'm not eloquent. I can't pray in public. I can't teach. I can't do this. I can't do that. Because we have slipped into, into believing that eloquence is what we need to have. The Corinthians knew a good speech when they heard one, probably because they were an affluent community. They were a trade community. They were a place where people came and went. They'd be like New York City or someplace like that that has a lot of culture a lot of, a lot of uh, things done in public, stage plays and things like that. And so they knew an eloquent speech when they heard one. The Apostle Paul wasn't one of those guys who talked in that way. But what godliness really makes happen in our lives is compassionate communication. 
And I think this following passage captures what compassionate communication is to me. This is Paul talking to the Thessalonians. He said, our gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, salvation in Christ, it did not come to you in word only. The apostle Paul said, I didn't come to you and give a great speech. But it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. This is a high, high standard of communication. I look, I look back here, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. A person who delivers a speech or who teaches a, a class in college gets up, says their stuff, and walks away. Godly communication is born out of an investment in people's lives, of a willingness to sit and to work and to be with. The Apostle Paul was that kind of person. He didn't come to Thessalonica and stand up and say, I'm going to tell you the gospel, the good news, and then leave and go to another town. No, he stayed there and he invested his life with those people. The driving force in the Apostle Paul's life was helping people become disciples and all that that meant. He cared for people to come into relationship with God. His words were chosen to help other people's soul. How do you choose your words? How do you choose your words? How do you decide what to say? The Apostle Paul worked at speaking in such a way as to care for other people. Now, sometimes that means you have to confront people. There's nothing ungodly about confrontation. But even in confrontation, there needs to be the, the spirit of saying, why am I confronting? Am I only concerned about myself? Am I only concerned about being right? Or am I genuinely concerned about this other person who has done wrong or who may have done wrong inadvertently? Compassionate communication still confronts, it still encourages, it comforts, it corrects, it does whatever needs to be done, but it's done for the sake of the people spoken to. The Apostle Paul says, you know, if, if I could speak with the tongues of men, and, and it's possible he's talking about the spiritual gift of tongues, but the way this hyperbole is written, you know, or the tongues of angels, it leads me to believe that he's saying, if I could just speak in the most eloquent manner possible, it wouldn't matter if my communication was not coming out of a heart of compassion. Now, Paul doesn't say it's wrong to speak well. 
We should all strive to communicate clearly and plainly. But if all we're about is the words coming out and not the heart that drives them, we're missing genuine Christianity. Jesus said, here's how people will know that you're Christians. If you say the right thing every time. No. He said, the way they'll know you're Christians is if you have love for one another. And so as we test ourselves daily, we need to test ourselves in the manner of our words and say, am I trusting in words or am I, or am I trying to act out of a heart of love and speaking because of that? Oh, that's a test. And I've got a double test because God says, let not many of you be teachers knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment. <laughs> I've got a... I've got to really think about how to communicate in love. To be honest, one of the things I wrestled with this week was whether I would preach this text as it lays or look back at the Corinthians at all the terrible things they did and try to help you understand what it means to not be loving. But I looked at that and I said, oh, somehow we've got to get our minds and our hearts around what it means to act in love, and this is the beginning of that passage, and somehow I want to speak in a way that brings compassion to the table. And man, I have to work at that. But I don't think I'm alone because I think my main problem is I'm human, and I'm a sinner who's been saved. Sometimes pastors get scrutinized just a little bit more than people sitting in the pew. And as I was thinking about this week, I thought, you know what? You are right to scrutinize me very carefully. I need to speak very carefully. But is God's standard for you really different than the standard for me? As you would mentally look around the pews, arm's length either way from wherever you're sitting, have you been this morning saying, I want to impart my life to the people around me through my words? The word that I like to use about this is the word investment. It's not the word spend. The word spend means I give something away and I really don't get anything back for it too much. The word investment means I put something in a place and there is a reward, there, there, is, there is something that comes from it. God wants us to invest our lives in each other and he wants our words to come forth from that investment. Godliness is demonstrated by loving communication, not by eloquence. Secondly, godliness is demonstrated by a concern for people, not giftedness. Look at verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13. And though I might have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now here he's clearly talking about the extremes of miraculous ministry. I believe that generally speaking, when the word prophecy is used in the New Testament, it's talking about new revelation, new truth being given by God. And God did that because the entire book wasn't put together until about 90 AD, and God hadn't finished giving his revelation until then. And so he would 
put the words right in the, the, the mind of Paul and he would write them to people or he would get up and speak them. He had the gift of prophecy and others did too. In fact, if you read chapter 12 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that he said, look, the most excellent spiritual gift there is is the gift of prophecy because you're telling out God's word in a way that people can get their minds around it. These people had elevated things like speaking in tongues to the most excellent place because they liked the miraculous experience. But what he tells them is said, look, even if I had prophecy so that I could understand all of God's truth, the word mystery there doesn't mean something that's hard to understand. It means truths that God chose to reveal in the New Testament time frame that he did not choose to reveal in the Old Testament time frame. There were truths that God kept hidden, truths like the fact that Jews and Gentiles would be in the body of Christ together. God didn't talk about that in the Old Testament. It's called a mystery. The Apostle Paul says, if I could understand all of God's truths explicitly, and if I was such a great man that I could have faith and pray and God would move a mountain away. I mean, how great would that guy be today? There are some folks who want you to think they're that great today. They're on TV, and they have lines of people walking up to get a miracle. And they... Hit them on the head and they fall over or they say some things over them and boy, miracles are happening, miracles are happening and this guy is great. I went to a healing, the first healing service I ever went to was at Ferndale High School at the auditorium like 25 years ago. Saw the ad in the paper. I thought, well, I'm gonna go see for myself. Took my son, he was about this big. Sat up there and watched the show. The guy preached about how great he was. Everywhere I go, miracles happen. They're going to happen here. People went down and got their miracle. Not everybody. Not the guy in the wheelchair that looked like he had cancer. He went down, got it, went out, unchanged. People look at that kind of stuff and go, oh, what a great man. Or they look at somebody, you know, who, who is extremely gifted, we would say, like Billy Graham. What a great man. Now, I would say of Billy Graham, he is a great man because he fits this test. Because he's never tried to make himself great. He's never taken a huge salary. He's, never, he, he's, he's lived a godly life. Now, I don't agree with everything Billy Graham has ever done or said, but he has lived a godly life, and I believe he has shown, verse 2, he has passed the test. That is, he does what he does because he wants people to know Christ. He's not driven by his giftedness or his greatness. He's driven by love for people. Godliness is demonstrated by concern for people, not giftedness. I want you to look at an example of, of extreme giftedness. It's the prophet Jonah. We all know about Jonah and how he, he didn't want to take God's assignment, so he ran off and spent three days in the marine bed and breakfast and <laughs> became the bed and breakfast. And, and then he said yes and went about his duty Listen to what happened. Here's a guy who God gifted. He said, you're my prophet. Go down there and do a job. And listen to what happened. He went and preached in Nineveh. Do you know Nineveh's in the country of Iraq? There's actually an archaeological find there, the city of Nineveh. It's a place you can go to. That's where he went. He went from Israel to Nineveh. Have you ever figured how the ocean was supposed to help him get there? See, that's the other way. That's why he, he went the other way to the water. He should, have been going, he should have been going east. He went west. 
So the people of Nineveh, what happened when he preached? They believed God. And they proclaimed a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And then the word came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he laid aside his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. That was, an ev- that was a physical evidence that in their heart they were repenting of their sin. That's what they did in the Old Testament time frame. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and ashes. Not only the people, but the animals. We're going to show God that we have repented of our sin. We're wrong. We're sinners. Cover them with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You see, the message God gave Jonah was go down there and tell them I'm going to destroy the city because of their sin. And so they're going, oh, God, don't do that. We're sinners. We repent. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The whole city, there was a revival. Now, I, I don't know if every single solitary person got right with God, but the vast, vast majority said yes to God's message. What a great thing! But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. I tell you the truth, if you walk down here and accept accept Christ this morning, I will not become angry. But this guy was mad. So he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord God, is this not what I said when I was still in Israel? Therefore, that's why I... I ran to Tarshish, for I know that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Do you understand what he's saying? He said, I just knew if I went there and preached your word, those people are going to get saved. And he was angry about that. Do you know why? Because he hated those people. He didn't want them. He wanted them to go to hell. Now, we can hardly get our mind around that. We have some people we don't like too much, you know, like the Muslims. But I hope there's nobody here that wants Muslims to go to hell. But that's what he wanted. Therefore, now, Lord God, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Just kill me, God. The worst thing that I can imagine has happened. A whole city came to Christ. Now, just kill me. Would you read 1 Corinthians 13, 2 with me? And though I have the gift of prophecy, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. Folks, don't pursue giftedness as though I want to be great. I'm going to do something for God. Pursue love. People who love are great people. Jonah was not driven by a concern for the people of Nineveh. God gifted Jonah, God blessed his work, but Jonah was not a godly man. Reminds me of a missionary that I knew of. I did not personally meet the missionary, but I was personally very acquainted with his daughter. 
his daughter became engaged and married a person of color, a person from an Asian country. This missionary served in a Caribbean country where there were people of color. But he did not like people of color. And he was angry that his daughter would marry a person of color. What in the world's going on that somehow we can allow ourselves to think that such a thing is okay? Godly people are not, the great godly people are not tremendously gifted. They're tremendously loving. They care for people. Is your service to God based in concern for people? Why do you do what you do? We have all kinds of jobs in the church. We have people who do secretarial thing. We have Sunday school teachers. We have Awana workers. We have banner makers. We have audio runners. We have worship team members. We have a janitor. We have people who maintain the facility. Why do you do what you do? We need gifted people. Stupid people can't run the video system. That's just all there is to it. But we will never recruit gifted people who don't care for other people. It's not giftedness that we should be seeking, either as individuals or as a church. It's people who care for other people, people who want folks to become disciples, people who are willing to invest themselves in other folks. That's God's standard of greatness. That's God's standard of godliness. It's not just about becoming great. It's about being godly. Jonah was not godly. He went and preached. He was ungodly. I've known preachers who preach and folks get saved and they run off with a woman the next day that they've been having an affair with. They're not godly. They're not great. God wants us to be so thoroughly godly that what will drive our service is love for people. Godliness is demonstrated by concern for people not giftedness. Thirdly, godliness is demonstrated by giving for the sake of others, not by generosity. In other words, being generous is not the standard with God. The standard with God is why are you generous? In the book of Acts, we read about some incredible generosity. Uh, in chapter 4 of Acts, talking about the church, you know, several thousand people by this time, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and the apostles distributed to everyone as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That right there is an example of love that we cannot bring ourselves to mirror. 
They said, oh, there's people here that don't have food. Hey, I got a piece of land. I don't need the income from that, or, or maybe I do need the income, but I've got all these resources. I'm going to sell it, and here's the money. You guys just give it away any way you like. And that was going on. Now, in that environment of extreme love and extreme dedication to God and to his people, this, this story happens that you may be familiar with. But, right away when you see the word but, you know a contrast is coming. Something that was not the same as what was just spoken of. But, a certain man, man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And they kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's use the figure of $10,000. They sold something for $10,000. And they said, we're going to keep 2000 But when we bring the money in, we're going to say, we sold a piece of land for $8,000, and here's all the money. But Peter said... <laughs> Peter didn't even ask a question because he was a prophet. <laughs> Ananias, why is Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to God, but to men. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon those who heard these things. What, what the Apostle Peter said right before this was this. He said, look, you didn't have to give the whole amount. Nobody ever said you had to give the whole amount. So why have you come in here and lied about how much you sold this for? <clears throat> Folks, there's only one reason somebody does something like that. And that's because Barnabas had just done it and other people had done it. And can you imagine, can you imagine if my wife walked in here and said, we just sold a piece of property, and here's the $10,000. I'd say, what's wrong with you, girl? <laughs> no. And people would go, oh, thank you. Oh, that's great. What a dedicated act. And they'd pat her on the back. And well, we should, not to the exclusion of glorifying God, but we'd say, thank you for that gift. There's nothing wrong with appreciating what people do. We don't have to make it public, but if we do it, that's okay too. But somebody was sitting over here, or over there, and they said, I'm going to get me some of that love. Isn't it pretty obvious who Ananias loved? He didn't love the people he was giving to. He loved himself and, he, and his wife, and they loved themselves. They gave, presumably, a lot. It was a significant gift. It was generous but it was not godly. It was not godly. John MacArthur said this, and I think it's such a, such a poignant quote. The word agape is the word for love in this chapter. If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, that's the Greek word, and it's different from several other words, and so we're using that as a key concept. Agape love, this kind of love, is always self-sacrificing, but... Self-sacrifice does not necessarily come from love. You know, as I was meditating on that earlier in the week, I was struggling to understand it because look what he says. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. In other words, I'm going to give away all of my money, all of my things to feed the poor. I understand that. And though I give my body to be burned, I'm thinking, how could a person, why would a person give themselves up in some kind of a physical self-sacrifice if their heart wasn't right? 
And I realize the problem is I'm thinking the wrong way about the heart. We have people giving themselves to be burned frequently in our world today, don't we? They're called terrorists. And they believe so strongly that they are going to be rewarded for this act of, of, of jihad that they do, that they're willing to strap a bomb on themselves and give their lives in, in, in this cause, but they are not great people. Because it is possible to be self-serving with generosity. Listen to this example of, of the right kind of thinking. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds or your giving of, of money. It's literally almsgiving or the giving of money to people who are in need. That you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Folks, that, that's the clearest, clearest we can possibly understand that God says, if you do things with a wrong heart, I don't regard it. doesn't matter how great the deed is. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Can you imagine somebody, a trumpet player, walking ahead? I, I, one of the images that comes to my mind is in Africa, in a church we were in, not one of our churches, but an, another group of people. And when they took the offering, they had an offering box right here. And we congaed down in a conga line and put our offering in. And yes, we conged. <laughs> and we probably put more in the offering box than anybody else. <sighs> These people sounded a trumpet. Brother Lunsford is giving now. We work really hard in this church. We don't take pledges with names on it. There's one person in our church who knows what you give just so that their tax receipt can be written. We work really hard to do what this says because we want to guard ourselves against the sin that so easily creeps up in us. I've done something great. God says, no, 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 that's wrong, that's backwards. But when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your charitable deed may be done in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The heart of love in giving, whether it's money or time or stuff, the heart of love says, what does that person need? And how could I meet that need? The heart of self-love says, how could I get recognized for what I'm about to do? How can I let somebody know how great my giving is? Now, we, we just can't fathom that kind of activity, and yet we can fathom that kind of heart. Have you ever said, well, I just don't know. I just don't get recognized very much. I did all that work, and they didn't even say thank you. Now, we should say thank you. Absolutely, we should say thank you. And sometimes we're heartless. But you've got to ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? It's tough. Hey, I know. It's tough to put yourself out. And then there's no thank you at the end of it. And you're going, what? 
But that's the moment at which we need to stop and say, oh God, my heart is wicked. Oh God, help me to do things for you because you did so much for me. And help me to do things for other people because they need those things, not because I will be recognized. Apostle Paul put it this way. If I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. You know, you know what a drink offering was? They, they would take some wine or, and they would, they would literally just pour it out. and it, It's for God. Of course, once it's poured out, it's gone. And the Apostle Paul said, if that's what's happening to me, it's okay. I'm doing it for you. Over the last three plus years, I've been following the life of a pastor friend. I'm better friends with his wife because we went to college together, but we've known each other a little bit over the years. And this fellow battled cancer for the last three years, of uh, kidney cancer, and he went through all kinds of things, some experimental treatments. There were ups and there were downs. And uh, this last week, his wife wrote this in the update email. He began the labored breathing around 12 a.m., and at 5, I called our daughter to come be at the house. We started to pray that God would take him home soon and he did. And yesterday we went to the memorial service. And I was just so blessed. I told my wife, I'm, I'm just so blessed to go and see Christianity in such full measure shown to be true. I mean, this fellow, this fellow was a sports referee. He refereed some of my son's football games when my son played for Foster High School. He refereed adult softball. He refereed basketball, refereed all kinds of stuff. And he was highly regarded as a referee. What kind of a man do you have to be to be that way? His family was all there. At the end, they all got on the platform with his wife, and she said, thank you for all of the help people have been to them. His family is all in the Lord. His family spoke highly of him. One of his friends who was a seminary professor spoke about him and spoke highly of him and the time they spent together. And on and on, one of the you know, community members or whoever, and, and I just said, this guy was the real deal. He wasn't a great man, perhaps in the world's eyes, as though he achieved something, but what he achieved was investing his life in other people. And so that truly his memory won't die because people say, this man was great because he cared for me. He finished the course, he kept the faith. According to 1 Corinthians 13, he passed the tests. And I want to challenge you today to pick up these tests and to keep taking them day by day. Oh, this is a lifelong pursuit. If our mouth is the hardest thing there is to control, and God says it is, this is the first of those three tests, and there are two others equal to it. And so may God help us in our families, in our church, in our community to pass these tests. 